Thank you for attending the Mic Drop Market Spaces today. Just as a reminder before we begin, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell, long or short, any securities, commodities, or any related financial instruments. Please contact a licensed professional before making any investments or trading decisions. And with that, I will introduce our guests. We have first Ross Kennedy. Uh, Ross is the founder of Fortis Analy Analysis, a strategic consultancy that serves public and private sector clients operating at the nexus of geoeconomics and national security. He's a logistics industry veteran with 17 years of direct experience operating agribusiness, chemical, energy, humanitarian, food, defense, and water supply chains. And next we have John Conrad. Uh, Captain John Conrad is the founder and CEO of G Captain and is a seasoned maritime and offshore professional with hands-on experience in the energy sector. As a licensed captain for the world's largest ships, John has navigated drill ships, oil tankers, and oil tankers working closely with energy operations in various ports worldwide. His expertise extends to building cutting edge ships and overseeing billion dollar offshore construction projects in the most challenging marine environments. John is also the author of Fire on the Horizons, the untold story of the Gulf oil disaster and is a distinguished alumnus of New York Maritime College. And with that, thank you gentlemen for uh, being with us today. Really appreciate your time to kind of Sort through what's what's really going on in this right now through all the uh, crazy news that's going on. So uh, first we'll start. And you guys, I'm, a lot of these questions I, could be addressed to either one of you. So um, if you have any comments to you know any either one of your questions that I've asked the other, please feel free to jump in. And you know all the insights that we can gather, the better. So first, I'll start with Ross. Ross, I had you on Spaces in October, right after the Israel-Gaza conflict began, and you correctly and with precise accuracy foretold the problems that we are now seeing in the Red Sea. So kind of, can you give us an update of where we are with this, with like so much news flying around that's not always easy to piece together for the layman's? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and first of all, Tracy, thanks for having John and I on my, uh, knowledge and genius and me making ability, uh, takes a far back seat to John, but, uh, uh, happy to be here as well. I'll, I'll give um, you the mean point, but the, the rest <laughs> is not true. You, uh, you know, logistics as well as I do Russ. The, uh, um, re really the upshot here is that, uh, you know, as we as we discussed back in October, when you're, you're talking about kind of the axis of the world, uh, everything that happens that that moves west to east, east to west, you know, really centers around the Eurasian landmass. And to the extent that the U.S. Uh, is very closely tied to that from an energy perspective, um, you know, what happens there impacts you know trade. Uh, primarily imports moving in our direction. You know, the, the commercial disruptions are very easy to foresee. But um, here again, you know, Iran working through uh, proxies on a disruptive basis. There's certain places that, um, you know, really over the last decade that, that 
Iran has made a lot of investments into as far as uh, arming and equipping uh, these proxies to create trouble. Uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen, uh, a few other places besides. It, it wasn't too much of a stretch of an imagination to say that as as these you know as the Israeli conflict uh, war really um, spreads, that these proxies would be would be pushed into action in, in some really disruptive ways and. Um, you know, really it was geography and, and pretty predictable motives that, that kind of led that analysis. So that brings us to today, um, something like 95% of cargo vessels that would have normally transited uh, through the Bab el-Mandeb, uh, either northbound or southbound, uh, are now uh, at least the ones moving west uh, from Asia and the Middle East to Europe that would normally utilize that route, uh, are now having to move around uh, the uh, coast of South Africa and uh, up the Atlantic seaboard of, of Africa. And, and uh, the impact of that is an extra, you know, anywhere from five to eight days, uh, depending on, you know, point of origin uh, into Rotterdam uh, and into the Northern European ports. Uh, it's about double that from an extra transit time standpoint, if they're going to go into Southern Europe and, and you know, have to hit the med ports and, and Greece and, and Italy. Um, to the U.S., it obviously adds a substantial amount of extra time as well. And, you know, this analysis has been done to death by a lot of people, you know, in general. Uh, <clears throat> every day that, that a container ship or a tanker uh, bulk cargo vessel is, is on the water, you know, it's incurring massive amounts of extra consumption of fuel, uh, sustainment for the crew. Uh, it's a lot of different challenges. And so that opens up ship owners to... Uh, you know, while avoiding one risk, they add a lot of financial risk to the pile from an operating standpoint. Uh, from a container ship side in particular, uh, you know, it's a point that John and I and, and Sam Mercoliano have all made as well. You're dramatically reducing the number of turns that a container can make. And now we're coming into the season right ahead of Chinese New Year, uh, when historically uh, importers that are buying materials and, and goods that are manufactured in China or uh, intermediate products are are trying to slam as much out as they can uh, before China really goes into a, effectively from a shipping standpoint a two to three week shutdown. Uh, these containers that would have gotten back and been available uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a more palatable rate, we've seen rates absolutely explode. There are fewer vessels and fewer containers available uh, for these buyers to be able to move their goods due to the much longer transit times. Uh, if you're taking an extra 10 days to get to, you know, Europe, uh, coming out of Asia, uh, you know, not being able to access the Red Sea, uh, that's an extra 20 days when you factor in the head haul and the back haul uh, of the goods moving one way and the empty containers and exports out of Europe moving back the other way. So you've had this very large dislocation uh, of, uh, of assets and that drives rates higher and the ocean carriers uh, you know, again, as we discussed in October, you know, have been looking for any excuse to drive rates higher. Uh, they've got, they got very drunk in 2020, 2021, 2022 uh, on the disruption, the ability to drive rates to the, you know, in, into the interior of the U.S. from, you know, $3,000, you know, all the way up to $25,000, $30,000 in some cases, and, and were just hugely profitable in the 2022 year. And so with that sharp decline in rates that we saw in 2023, as we began to normalize, they needed some excuse, any excuse getting into Q4 uh, of 2023 and, and moving into Q1 of 24 
to be able to drive rates as high as possible to establish a higher floor ahead of contract season, uh, which begins at the end of February, early March, where they set the rates with the very, very large shippers that have very large, uh, you know, high freight uh, requirements. Those are the rates that are kind of become the benchmark for spot pricing and smaller scale uh, contracts that other shippers have with, with the carriers. And, and that 90 to 120 days ahead of contract season is really when they begin to say, okay, this is, this is kind of the moving average over that time period. And that's where we're going to begin the rate negotiations. And now we're hearing of MSC suddenly reactivating their diamond pricing tier, you know, $12,000 from China to the U.S., uh, where rates were, you know, from two to four and a half. And that, that has put an extremely negative uh, economic outlook on anybody that's a high volume importer, whether it's in Europe or into the U.S., and is really dependent on these trades staying stable. Uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, this obviously has a lot of uh, implications as well. Uh, John will probably very ably cover some of what we're seeing on the, uh, uh, the Department of Defense side, allied response uh, to the crisis. But, but really right now, none of the messaging is good. Uh, no matter how you know hopeful or uh, positive or stable uh, the carriers and the governments want to make it seem. And then what what kind of you know when do you think we're going to start seeing uh, kind of these supply chain disruptions show up in the U.S. and in Europe, for instance? Like you know, are we going to be seeing empty shelves again or? Uh, and, and what kind of, you know, what kind of impact do you foresee this uh, as far as goods reaching, you know, and delays reaching uh, Europe and the U.S.? Well, retailers and manufacturers were, were really over the last six months of last year and into the, you know, now here the first week, week and a half of 24. You know, they're able to be, you know, rebuild inventories and, you know, they were finally getting goods out of Asia towards the end of 22. And then as rates began to plummet. Um, what we really saw was the carriers began to uh, do what they could as far as blank sailings and, and laying up vessels for a couple of weeks or moving them into another trade to, you know, right size capacity in the lanes and, and try to keep some sort of floor on those rates. But that was really a function of demand being down. And now when we're talking about every vessel having to take an extra 20 days, you're going to have to put if, if you've got a larger demand cluster. Uh, in a certain trade lane, you have to pull vessels from other trades and, and kind of shift the balance uh, really across all of that. So inventory levels levels will still have to bleed down uh, to some extent before that that negative impact is really felt. But if we if we maintain some sort of durable disruption um, in the Middle East, yeah, there will be a normalization. Um, MSC probably won't be able to carry a $12,000 rate, uh, but everything is so fragile right now that as the Walmart and, and Target, uh, Home Depot, the big retailers and manufacturers and importers in Europe are, are now looking at what are the rates going to be uh, just over the next two to three months, uh, the carriers are in much stronger leveraging and negotiating position. And so then what you will see those importers do is pull back on their buying, pull back on um, the amount of ocean freight activity they have to do. If, if ocean freight rates are three or four or five X, what you were budgeting for at the tail end of 23 coming into 24 um, we'll move back from you know kind of this whipsaw back from a glut uh, of inventory and reduced demand for international freight to uh everybody trying to kind of optimize for for the much higher rates 
uh, inventories reduced down and very much be back right in that bullwhip effect again, where we're, we kind of go from uh, rapid expansion to contraction to, to expansion. And I, I, I look at 2024, I look at, you know, Taiwan has a presidential elections here uh, upcoming very rapidly. A lot of the calculus around what does China do um, is, is really weighted against that. So we don't just have the disruption in the Middle East, which is, you know, enormously uh, disruptive, but we also have uh, potentially uh, a level of uh, disruptive activity and behavior by, by China, you know, the manufacturing engine of the world uh, that, that would be hugely uh, difficult for importers and buyers and manufacturers who source from there to be able to offset. Uh, so looking at 24, it, 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 it's certainly a year of uncertainty on the uh, sourcing and supply chain side of as we get into June, as we get into July, if I'm an auto manufacturer right now, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. Um, you know, just coming out of the labor disruptions, uh, you've got, you know, the disruptions coming across the border between the U.S. and Mexico with the factories. And, you know, now you're looking at a major part supplier marketplace uh, potentially being disrupted both at the source and in the transit lanes and available shipping capacity. So uh, it's not, to my view, where we sit today, it's not an extremely positive outlook. Excellent. <laughs> um, uh, let's go over to John. I want to kind of dig into this on the military side of things here for a little bit. So Operation Prosperity Garden, is it functioning or, you know, it, it kind of seems like it fell apart at the beginning. So kind of wanted to know, you know, where are we sitting with uh, with that? And then I also wanted to talk about, you know, the U.S. is bringing back the USS Gerald Ford aircraft carrier strike group from the East Med. So does this diminish the U.S. presence in the area at all? And what kind of effect does that have? But start with Operation Prosperity Garden. Right. So Operation Prosperity Guardian um, was was the U.S. led or is the U.S. led coalition to kind of secure uh, attacks on the Red Sea. What happened uh, last last month was a, a MERS ship was attacked. It wasn't hit directly. Uh, Maersk asked the White House for protection of their ships in the area. And uh, the White House spokesman, Admiral Kirby, came out the very next day and said, Maersk, Maersk is on their own. If they want to divert, they can, but we're not going to do undue help to Maersk. Um, Maersk uh, panicked a little bit. Uh, they got a few other major carriers to go along with this rerouting idea. The U.S. Navy started coming uh, up with a plan to slowly uh, first allow U.S. flagged and then uh, you know, close allies like French and UK ships to come in. And the White House pretty much overruled that plan um, and said, uh, no, we are going to create this Operation Prosperity Guardian. We're going to protect all ships, not just our own ships. And uh, they, they ran with it uh, in coordination with the Secretary of Defense and kind of pushed the Navy out of it. Um, so then what happened is the White House started making all the phone calls to our allies and out of there, there are already 34 navies in the Red Sea protecting against piracy. Out of those 34, only 10 decided to join. A number of those like Canada and the Netherlands said, hey, we're only sending um, staff officers. We're not going to actually send any warships. Um, 
And then they had the first meeting of Operation Prosperity Guardian and the French, which is one of the largest naval powers, said, hey, uh, let's let's prioritize American ships, let's prioritize French ships, and then as we gain capacity, we will protect other countries that want to join in this coalition. So if you want to join in the coalition, great, we'll protect you. If not, you're going to have to wait until we secure the area. And uh, from what I hear, the White House said, no, that's not, we're going to protect everyone. French got really mad. They left the coalition. They ended up coming back, but with these conditions that they are not going to follow American orders and they are going to prioritize uh, French owned ships. Um, and it, it kind of <coughs> deteriorated from there. Um, the, the, they, they dropped the ball on this. Um, they've slowly been bringing in additional warships. Uh, Secretary Blinken just went to Greece and got them to agree on providing a, a frigate. Uh, Sri Lanka is going to send a frigate. The UK went from two ships. They're, they're going to bring in another uh, frigate. But these are relatively small uh, ships uh, that don't have the anti-air VLS, vertical launch system missiles that can protect other ships in the region. And, um, you, you know, the we, we just found out the Secretary of Defense, uh, who's supposed to be managing a lot of this, was in the hospital and didn't have a relief for a number of days. Um, and from what I hear... The White House is continuing to misstep on this. And every not only are our allies stepping away from Operation Prosperity Guardian, but essential elements of the U.S. military are stepping away. Um, the, the Marines, historically, will, will put Marines on at least U.S. flagships to help protect them. Uh, the Marines move their uh, MEU group back to the med, uh, kind of getting away from this area. Uh, the Air Force has a drone base in Djibouti, which is right there, and uh, they've been very silent on this. And the Army, historically, um, if you go down to Manhattan and you cross the Verrazano Bridge or the Throgsneck Bridge, any of these bridges and the choke points of Manhattan, you look down, there's a Revolutionary War fort there because the army is classed with protecting these choke points and where is the patriot missile system that should be in Djibouti or some of these islands in the Red Sea so our allies are running away from Operation Prosperity Guardian and our own military is is running away and it's kind of being run by the National Security uh, Council which has no shipping expertise Trump opened a maritime desk in the National Security Council and day one of the Biden administration, they closed that desk. So, and Biden has not been very helpful to, to the Navy. They know nothing about maritime and shipping and they've kind of held the Navy at, at arm's length these past few years. Meanwhile, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who is supposed to be the liaison between the military and the maritime shipping industry, he's been completely silent. So, I'd say I'd say it's a it's a mess, Tracy. Well, excellent. Um, what uh, and then what about the United States bringing back the USS 
Gerald Ford, it seems like, you know, what we're left with there is n not, you know, it doesn't have the capacity an air aircraft carrier strike group does. Um, so does, you know, does this severely diminish the U.S. presence in the area? Right. That's a great question. Uh, you know, the, the, the broader question is the United States spent something between six and eight trillion dollars on the global war on terror, including the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. And that 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 that, you know, now we have over 30 trillion dollars in debt. Well, six to eight trillion of that was caused by uh, these wars. But more importantly than the money itself has been that the. Uh, national security uh, complex in the, in the United States has been focused on these small land wars in Asia. Um, and anyone who's seen the movie Princess Bride knows how inconceivable and ridiculous it is to fight land wars in Asia. But that means that our national security apparatus has not been watching uh, shipping, has not been watching trade, has not been watching financial markets, has not closed the door on huge amounts of investment pouring into Chinese shipyards and Chinese industrial. Uh, it's really taken our eyes off the ball. So the Navy, you know, ships, are, our Navy fleet is old. It's highly capable. Our aircraft carriers are the best in the world. You've seen the USS Kearney in the Red Sea shooting down drones and missiles left and right. But we don't have enough ships. We don't have enough missiles. We don't have enough aircraft carriers. So um, the the Eisenhower was originally supposed to go and and replace the Ford. The Ford has been overdue on their schedule, and their crews got extended by uh, three months. But these are sailors who were expecting to go home, who are working over. And the more you push these assets, the more you try to extend them to uh, meet these uh, geopolitical uh, concerns around the world. Um, the, the less reserves you have in your back pocket. So it's not the fact that, you know, we're, we're pulling a carrier because it's not needed. We're pulling a carrier because we don't have enough carriers and the carriers have to be guarded by these destroyers, which we are short of. Um, the USS Kearney shot down 14 missiles and then it had to go all the way back to Bahrain and reload those missiles because it only has about uh, 30 anti-air missiles. Once it uses those, it has to go back to base and, and spend uh, days, if not weeks, reloading uh, those. So it's really, we, we have a shortage of uh, ships, uh, Navy ships, and we, we can't be everywhere at once. And the, the critical place we're looking at is the South China Sea. So historically, we relied on allies. We asked our allies to help um, you know, during times of crisis, may, maybe while we're in the Red Sea, they can manage other areas of the world. Well, the European navies have uh, underfunded. They've been below their 2% GDP requirement that they're supposed to spend on military for NATO. So, And they've underfunded the Navy compared to the Army and the Air Force. So they don't have many available ships. Um, Japan has greatly expanded their Navy. South Korea has uh, invested in the Navy. Australia is now a member of AUKUS. But they basically told um, the White House when asked for these ships in the Red Sea, 
you know, we cannot afford to, uh, to, to leave our post in the South China Sea. Things are getting, there's too much tension with China, um, for, for us to leave right now. We're, we're busy. So that's why they said no. That's great. So how, if you were to kind of rank the threat level right now compared to other situations in history, what kind of threat level are we looking at at like a one to 10? It's, it's, it's high. It's higher than I expected. And I've been one of the, you know, biggest proponents, at least on Twitter, of saying we, we don't have a Navy, we don't have the skills, we can't handle all these geopolitical crises. And I met with a senior admiral, I can't I can't see who, his team uh, last month up in Boston, they were talking to financial uh, banks and analysts about closing some of this funding going into China. And I was told by the senior aide that, you know, how worried I am, uh, you know, the, the reality is three to four times my own uh, expectations of, of risk. You know, China wants to retake Taiwan and you have what's called the Davidson window where our uh, period of uh, greatest concern on a Navy is is projected to be at, at 2027 before we get some of these autonomous ships and the and the shipbuilding back in a place where we can we can start building again. And China's kind of maximum uh, level is is that same window. But then you also have to look at it uh, from the Chinese perspective. Do you want to create uh, havoc, or if 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 you're going to retake Taiwan? And they, I believe they want to do it peacefully, but it depends on the Taiwanese elections. And then you have to put yourself in Chairman Xi's uh, shoes. Like, are you going to wait? We know the National Security Council is making bad decision after bad decision. We know that the, the Pentagon is making fundamental mistakes, like missing the Secretary of Defense. No one knows where he is for days. Are you going to wait for a, a change of guard with the possible elections um, where some of these things can be improved? Or are you going to go and uh, get your military objective, Taiwan, now? But the, the bigger question, uh, Tracy, is, you know, w we have just a, a cornucopia of, of problems. Uh, Sal Marcagliano, uh, the What's Going On in Shipping in YouTube, a good friend of Ross and mine, great analyst on this. He said, it's, it's not just a black swan event, the Red Sea. We are getting bombarded by a flock of bad, of black swans. We have a uh, low water in the Panama. We have the Red Sea incident. We have a ship just struck a, a mine in the Black Sea um, two weeks ago. Uh, we have increased tensions in the South China Sea and with Taiwan and our Navy is expending uh, missiles, not only on the ships, but donations to Taiwan and movements around the world. We have mass retirement in, in the military. We have military um, officers and sailors uh, committing suicide because we, we don't really have a, a clear objective. You know, what, what is the military? What, what's the purpose now? Are we protecting uh, Ukraine? Are we protecting Israel? Are we protecting against China? Are we protecting the First Amendment right of freedom of speech, freedom of uh, the press. You know, the, the right seems to be attacking the press uh, since Trump, and the left seems to be attacking freedom of speech right now. 
So, you know, what, as a military officer, what, what is your objective? What are, are you defending the United States? Are you defending allies? This uncertainty is really causing a lot of uh, stress throughout the, the ranks. And this, the, the, I mean, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the one silver lining was, you know, these, these military officers, they lost friends. They, they spent their entire career fighting this battle. Biden withdraws, and you can say whether that withdrawal was Trump's fault or not. And, you know, the silver lining was, hey, we're going to get back to business and focus on China, focus on these global threats. But now you've had the, the White House issue multiple statements saying, telling the Houthi there are going to be dire consequences if you keep attacking ships, and we don't follow through with what, what are the consequences? What's going to happen to the Houthis? You know, what what is the threat? We We keep giving concessions back to China and no one no one knows what the objective here but the bigger problem uh, Tracy is you have all of these small things that are adding up to a huge logistical and geopolitical problem and major problems like like uh, Jim Bianco uh, points out uh, continually about these shipping issues it could lead to uh, inflation, and it could lead to further geopolitical um, uh, uncertainty as each country. Now, the, think about this. The, the Navy would protect all ships, and this alliance would protect all ships. Now, France is protecting their own ships, right? You have India and Pakistan coming into the Red Sea not to protect all ships, but to protect their goods and their trade. We have this fracture of this cohesion. And you have to ask too, you know, is this is this a random set of black swan events or is this being coordinated by someone uh, to add stress to the system before something bigger happens? We know Iran is backing the Houthis and causing a lot of these problems. But the number one trade partner of Iran and the source of most of their capital is China. Um you know, they, they're, a lot of these things end up, you know, if you trace them second or third degree back to China, is this just a case of China not being on the ball or is this a coordinated attack, uh, you know, China's investment in helping Russia with, with the Ukraine, China's massive investment in, in the Panama region, uh, China's backing of Iran? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, but... Um, you know, there, there's too much suspicious activity to think that it's all random events. Thanks. And then back to Ross. Um, did you have anything, anything to add on that? No, I, I think, um, <clears throat> I, think okay. I think John, yeah, I think John really kind of ably, uh, uh, ably covered the issue. Um, okay. One of the biggest things that were, also looking at, you know, on, you know, some of the project planning and some of the work that I do from, you know, a national security side is the issue of sustainment. And when we look not even over the horizon, when we look a month, two months, three months down the road, um, the, the pacing challenge for us is going to be how do we, from a logistical standpoint, work on an interoperable basis with commercial partners? Uh, with allies, allied navies, allied you know commercial fleets, 
and leverage those resources to the maximum of our ability. Um, we under one under one scenario, it's it's pretty solvable. Um, you know, you follow certain commercial principles, you follow established doctrine that we've had for a long time for things like NCAGs, the naval coordination and, and guidance for for shipping. Um, these are not new things. These are tools we've had in the toolbox for a long time. Uh, we've had, you know, existing networks of relationships and, and domain knowledge on maritime domain awareness. Um, but it, it, the, the biggest concern for me right now is as, as we stand here today and we, we look six months, 12 months into the future is that this administration in particular, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I'm not going to make it political, but. When, when you look at the body of work, when it comes specifically to logistics and supply chain challenges, you have a secretary of transportation that I think, John, what is it? One statement uh, Secretary uh, Buttigieg has, has issued uh, regarding the Red Sea and the U.S. Merchant Marine is it falls under the Maritime Administration. And that's and that's part of his bailiwick. That's part of his command, if you will. And, and it's been one statement. But in the last week, we've had three statements about weather disruption and, and airline travel and about how climate change is the biggest threat for 2024 to uh, uh, to the commercial shipping sector. And that that's insane. It's 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 a level of gaslighting that that, you know, even even for D.C. is is, is impressive and could only have come from a McKinsey brain. And that's that's one challenge. But then you look at the defense side of the equation. The secretary Buttigieg has has primary responsibility for uh, how the U.S. operates in the global commons from a commercial standpoint, then, you know, Secretary Austin as the, as the Secretary of Defense would have primary responsibility for navigating these challenges from the defense side. And when you look at where the threats are specifically, where the U.S. buys its fuel, where we land our uh, cargo planes and move, um, you know, goods from, from A to B or move materiel from A to B that we need to sustain our our air bases and and you know we still have a huge amount of troops uh, in in Syria and Iraq. A lot of you know th those have kind of been the forgotten domains. And since October, those troops have been under just absolutely relentless attack by Iranian proxies. And at some point, the bullets and bandages and water runs out, and you have to be able to resupply them and replenish them. And so, if you draw circles around what are the big threats that that we have, yes, on water is a huge issue. Just, just from the disruptive nature of these proxy attacks and and you know malign actions, but even our own uh, uh, contracted service providers and and fleet providers and strategic airlift and sealift providers. When you look at what Maris, you know the the absolute bullshit they tried to pull uh, at the begin at the onset of Operation Prosperity Guardian, we didn't really need Operation Prosperity Guardian. We had the sealift capacity available and the ships available to protect these things that are going to our troops to and from the Middle East and other regions of the world. And Mayor saw it as an opportunity to uh, leverage protection for their entire fleet, not just their U.S. flag fleet, the, the Maersk Line fleet, uh, all of it worldwide. And it's like, OK, well, it, it would sure be a shame if one of these ships got hijacked with, you know, DOD material is kind of the, the, the sort of indirect or implied message. And you know, it was an absolute shakedown by someone who's, you know, a strategic partner who's under contract to the U.S. government. And these things just seem to be continuing to catch this administration by surprise. And so if they're behind the eight ball on solving with the, with the existing robust capabilities we have, 
if they're behind the eight ball and solving for these fairly straightforward challenges that that are very predictable, when I look six to twelve months out into the future at some of these these more gray or unknown or you know sort of Schrodinger's range of outcomes here on dealing with Chinese activity uh, near the Senkaku Islands with Taiwan, um, you know I pulled up I pulled up one of the AIS maps this morning and there's a huge cluster of uh, Chinese fishing vessels just absolutely blasting their AIS to show the world we're here, um, <clears throat> you know, near, near the Loata Bank and the Spratleys, which the, these are features of the Spratleys that are, that are Filipino territory. Um, it's just outside their EEZ, but it is still their, you know, as far as their coastal EEZ, but it is their, it is their sovereign domain and has been recognized as such since the 70s. And China's just broadcasting to the world that we're going to put whatever assets we want wherever we want and and continue this behavior of clogging the global commons and these lanes that are very important to their trade but also very important to ours and if we can't if we have a level of national security and economic leadership right now that is being caught flat-footed and unresponsive and they're on you know they're in the hospital and not telling even their deputy you know that 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 the chain of command is broken for the nuclear football for commercial and, and defense decision making if we can't even get a a basic level of fundamental competence on those things the the question becomes then what do the rest of us do on the outside as commercial stakeholders um to deal with these these more unquantifiable and and if those of us the kind of people who are listening to a, a spaces like this or participating in it uh, are concerned with those challenges. What does the average ocean freight buyer do, or the the average supply chain manager do, or the average you know guy who's got the ball on sourcing for a uh, a critical mineral that they need for a manufacturing operation in Europe or in North America? Um, the the every day that this goes on adds days of uncertainty. These are nonlinear um, in in terms of time and, and duration of impact and scope of impact, they're, they're exponential. Um, you know, the, the early disruption in 2020 of vessels coming out of China and, and the lockdowns led to a, a two and a half year uh, supply chain bottleneck that just crushed a ton of companies. And we're, we're looking at a similar wave of these things building up where, where we have the Taiwan election and now we also have Chinese New Year coming on the heels of that. And the timing of all of this is such that it, it, it will be durable, even if everything returns to normal day one when, when you know, China comes back from holiday. Um, even then, it's, it's months to unwind these types of things. And that, that would be if we'd already addressed uh, a lot of these right now challenges like the Bob Amanda, uh, which we haven't. So energy flows are disrupted, mineral flows are disrupted, you know, uh, intermediate and finished good trade flows are disrupted. And these things don't just snap back to normal. They take months and months to unwind. And every day that we have this very indecisive, incoherent um, leadership, as it were, happening at the front, the, the people, you know, uh, out, out, out front of the issue at the point of requirement or at the point of threat, you know, U.S. merchant marines, uh, sailors, airmen um dealing with these things there it's months of unwinding and complexity for them as well so um it's really a struggle for me to be truly optimistic about this the the one optimistic thing i can say is that uh, the united states has a really 
time proven ability to, as Churchill said, they'll, they'll do everything wrong until they get it right uh, in the United States. And, and my, my, my belief is that we will, um, we will eventually get this right. Uh, but the, the really the, the concerning unknown here is at what cost to the body politic and, the, and, and to the U.S. economy, and as well as to that of our allies that we, we have mutual defense treaties with, that we have bilateral and multilateral obligations to uh, support them. And, and we just don't have enough iron, enough fuel, and enough missiles to throw at the problem. And uh, we don't have the leadership right now that seems to be able to think ahead, think asymmetrically, and, and plan and execute effectively. And I just want to add real quick, Tracy, what what logistics requires, what shipping requires, what military operations requires, what you know the supply chain requires is clear objectives. What's going to happen in a month, six months, a year? That that's what businesses and militaries and the need to plan for. I I don't I can't predict what's going to happen next month and what where where are we heading? Are are we are we retaliating against the Houthis or are we not? Are we that there's no there's no clear there's no leadership giving us objectives that we can start planning for. That not just us, not just the supply chain, not just businesses, but our military. Without that leadership, how do you even start to create the hard planning and logistics, the calendar? I mean, you invited us on here two two weeks ago. You have clearly set who your guests are and where they're going. That that's how you run a business and a podcast. We don't have that from our leadership. So, uh, all right, well, back to Ross for a minute here. I, first, I wanted to ask a question about tankers because I read a, like, a Lloyd's report a couple days ago, I believe, that said that basically uh, we're not seeing tankers, oil and product tankers in mass. Um, what did they say? Tanker do Tanker diversions have picked up in the span of the last two weeks, but they're not occurring in mass as tanker volumes continue to flow through the Red Sea. So why do you think this is, why do you think this tank, the, the tankers business, the tanker business is different from the container business? Why are the containers in mass avoiding this? In other words, and tankers haven't been really. So part of it is, is that the, the Middle East, Iran included, is is primarily dependent on the fossil fuel economy for um for their own capital right for the, for their own budgets for their you know in the cases of some of the leaders of these countries they're pretty lavish uh lifestyles um disrupting disrupting the tanker fleet has a direct knock-on impact to um disruption of their ability to to extract and refine and ship uh, various flavors of fossil fuels. In Iran's case, it's it's you know uh, you know both natural gas uh, coming out of the the gas field that they share with Qatar um, or Qatar, if I guess if you're fancy and not a redneck like me. Um, it's it's also you know a, a very large you know and it's what floats their economy besides exporting of cheap drones and and missiles to their proxies. Um, you know product that comes out of the, the the standard petrochemical supply chain. And those tankers are not a, um, per, particularly ones that are willing to contract up and run sanctions. Um, th those are not 
fungible assets that there's just a million of available in the world at, at, a, at a relatively cheap cost. Uh, you're talking about a very kind of bespoke space from a fossil fuel side that Iran in particular occupies. And so they're, they're going to be a lot more opportunistic and selective, I think, when they start targeting energy carrying assets. The container ship side, though, is a lot more uh, globalized. It's, it's frankly a lot more Western oriented in terms of who's uh, the primary users of those ships, because you know the European and, and North American economies are all very uh, important dependent for the most part, and it's been a pretty it's it's been a pretty low risk proposition for uh, uh, Asian domiciled vessels, particularly Chinese like Costco and OCL, to uh, be able to transit those waters and and move through more or less unmolested. So they have a level of uh, certainty there because of the Iranian Chinese uh, alignment, but for the the largest part of the global container ship fleet is European. It's Maersk, it's MSC, it's CMA, um, it's uh, Hapag Lloyd. And so it's it's those carriers that that really, because simply by virtue of being more or less European domiciled, uh, having a huge amount of skin in the game and trade with North America uh, to and from China and, and, and you know, in the Asia Europe routes, they have a lot more at risk and there's a lot more ways that pressure can be brought to bear on container ship assets and to some extent dry bulks, but, but really containers specifically because they're, they're linked so tightly to highly consumptive uh, economies that, that stand opposed largely to, to what Russia and China and Iran have been doing in the world uh, over the last couple of decades. So it's, it's, it's geopolitical, it's, it's also strategic and practical to uh, avoid messing with the energy assets. Um, and in particular, when you start talking about some really niche platforms, uh, you know, yeah, you have VLCCs and, you know, there are things that are just, you know, dirty tankers that are carrying crude. Um, that's one thing. But when you start talking about a, a much smaller pool of, uh, you know, chemical tankers, refined products tankers that are carrying refined fuels, um, that, that gets very, that, that calculus shifts against them uh, in a hurry, if those if those tankers begin to be targeted uh, and disruptive in any sort of meaningful way, uh, because then the one thing they really truly need to be able to move what runs their economy uh, goes away. Uh, so I think you'll see container ships continue to be kind of the primary target set that that the Houthis are are going after. Uh, to some extent, things like Roros and um, you know, there's not really any Conros operating there or container uh, roll on roll off ships. Uh, those hybrid platforms, but but certainly container ships and dry bulks to to some extent uh, will continue to really be the 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 biggest targets of opportunity. And uh, again, despite what you know the Houthis are saying, despite what Iran is saying, despite what anybody's saying, these ships really, after the first couple, don't really have any link at all to to Israel to anything happening there. Um, it, it's just now basically an all out you know, one side taking shots, one side defending itself, uh, you know, sort of paradigm. And, and it's, it's really directed at the commercial cargo traffic itself, not the energy traffic. Do you foresee any situation that this would ever lead to an actual hot war with Iran? I've, I've been on the, I've been on the, I've been falling on the side of, uh, when targets of opportunity and, and targets uh, the ability to escalate in the Persian Gulf uh, and in the Arabian Sea, um, you know, as you start to get around, you know, Oman and 
and uh, UAE more, you know, in India as well, you know, their Northwestern coastal jurisdiction. We've already seen some activity in the Arabian Sea. I think there's been two or three uh, attacks there, either attempted hijackings or, or direct missile attacks on ships. And the Indian Navy has uh, responded very rapidly to that and, and begun, uh, you know, enforcing that area of operations. Um, Persian Gulf gets a little bit hazy on the calculus simply because that that is the primary export hub for Iran. And so they, they have a lot lower margin of error as far as impact to their own, uh, their own trade and their own economy. Um, but I absolutely do think that the further escalation, particularly as uh, attacks on U.S. troops that are based on land, um, you know, Kuwait is our primary way of, of moving uh, materiel for replenishment there. And, and if you just draw a big circle, uh, you know, for a few hundred miles around that area, um, that certainly probably becomes uh, one of the next high risk areas as uh, we continue to struggle, you know, in, in the Red Sea and particularly the Southern Corridor there uh, to respond. I, I do think that you'll start to see uh, U.S. strategic sea lift and even airlift assets begin to be targeted um, that in, in, in an attempt to really try to cut them off from anything they can use, the U.S. troops can use to sustain themselves and uh, you know, in the land parts of the Middle East that are high threat environments. Uh, that's probably the next domino to fall. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, but um, so far, uh, if not in timing, but certainly in, in the dominoes that, that are falling one after the other, it is following a very predictable pattern. Um, a lot of that's going to be variable based on, you know, if, if Iran is certainly the, the main, you know, agitator in the area and and belligerent in the area, um, their leash to some extent is really held by China and Russia as well. And I think that um, you know any sort of next escalation is going to be timed uh, uh, to to really benefit one or both uh, of those primary stakeholders that Iran has. So um, the the next you know the what comes next makes sense. The the timing of it's a little bit uncertain, but. Um, you know, even even just this this kind of level of analysis that's happening on spaces, it, it, you know, again, is is probably above the level of analysis that is actually being considered. Um, you know, at the top of the national security food chain, DoD has some phenomenal people that that do targeting, they do mission planning, they do strategic development extremely well. But here again, I, I don't know that those good, accurate analyses and and prognostications are making their way to the top of the food chain. And, and I'll just add, Tracy, this, this is not, yeah, neither side, the, the U.S. is very cautious. They don't want an escalation. The White House has said that repeatedly, and not just here, but we haven't sent naval warships in the Black Sea. We've really limited the naval weapons uh, given to Ukraine. Uh, the, the fact that they're very careful about escalation for better or worse, but the other side is as well. Um, th this is really a test by Iran and China has warships right there in the Red Sea that are monitoring all these various, and they're testing different types of missiles, different types of drones. They're trying to find out how they can do the maximum amount of damage without, uh, you know, pulling out a shotgun and, and taking someone's head off. The, this is, this, this is a cancer instead of a, a, 
a global problem. Like we, we had the, you know, even the tankers, there was a tanker attack, the Chem Pluto on December 23rd. They did that right before Christmas at the bottom of the news cycle to say, Hey, let's hit a tanker. Let's not hit it in the tank. They hit it on the stern as far away. So it wouldn't explode and see what the reaction is. You know, the, the, this is, this is more, this isn't just the Houthis, indiscriminately attacking they're they're attacking different countries or different types of ships different trade routes and they're really gauging what that reaction is and they're trying to cause the most not not first order effects second order effects third order effects when we get back to your original question with uh ross you know is this going to cause the the uh the toilet paper shortage that we saw in COVID? no this is not going to cause that. What this is causing is a, a massive amount of, of rejigging, moving supplies around, box shortage. You know, where this isn't, they don't want to install a panic where everyone runs the shelves and, and close the doors. They want to shut down the supply chains and shut down the manufacturing and cause, uh, you know, Wait, look, look, I mean, and look what happened with the, with the, when we talk about energy markets with the Russian war, uh, there was a huge effort to bring in LNG regasification uh, units into Europe. That panic caused a big reaction, which, you know, solved the problem. We, we did not have the energy crises in Europe that we predicted they would have because that, that crisis, um, response from the West caused strong, um, economic response caused a, a strong removing of ships and, and so forth. This isn't that this is how can we, how can we slow down and, and put, uh, you know, affect individual parts of this to cause the most damage without the West really taking a big response, which is going to immediately fix the problems that they cause. So what kind of, what do you see if we're just talking about, you know, North America, what kind of economic damage do you foresee this, you know, could occur? <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the the biggest thing is to undermine the the global, you know, the the America's reserve currency status. I mean, reserve currency. Everyone thinks it's a financial uh, thing. They think it's uh, Wall Street controls the reserve currency. The fact of the matter is, Tracy, <coughs> our reserve currency is on our ability to protect uh, world trade. The large majority of world trade is in the U.S. dollar. And you could say all you want about monetary policy and the Fed, but it's it's gumbo diplomacy. It's a, our ability to make sure our goods and money moves the way we want it to move. And this underlies that fact. If you're not moving trade, if deals are being made with individual countries where individual countries are protecting their own shipments, well, why don't if if they're protecting their own ship, if France is protecting its own ships anyway. Um, and those ships are going to France to offload in France. That has an happy potential. Why not? Why not uh, trade in the euro? Same with China. Why not trade? Um, you know, in in Chinese currency. If you know the the, the Chinese ships can get through, because potentially a deal was made with the Houthis or other reasons, and the. Uh, you know, American or or everyone's ships can't. So that's that's the big that's the big worry is 
Uh, the reserve currency, the other big worry, as Jim Bianca keeps pointing out, is, is inflation. When you have a cancer in the system, uh, that, that creates cancerous effects throughout the economy. And that really, um, you, you know, it, it doesn't spike inflation on the short term. If it spiked inflation on the short term, we have tools to immediately go in there and emergency correct for that. It's this um, second and third order effects uh, that are really, you know, the could bring inflation in for the long term. And then the, you know, you have to ask all of these political questions. I mean, it's United States support of, of Europe and our allies in Japan and, you know, South Korea. These alliances are important for trade, for finances, for everything else. And if these alliances start to fall off, fall apart for whatever reason, then you start having political infighting. Um, if, if it's every country for itself, that could be a collapse or undermine, uh, the EU and, you know, countries are going to have to pick, are they aligning with China, Iran, and Russia? Are they aligning with the United States? Is the United States going to align with, with the EU or each country going to fall apart? These kind of wrenches in the system are causing, um, you know, at, at the political level, at the diplomatic level are causing fundamental questions and, and negotiations to take place. Like Blinken just went to Greece and he convinced Greece to give a frigate to this aspiration prosperity guardian. That's great. It's wonderful news. Blinken says that is celebratory and it is, it's a good move, but it's only a fraction of the VLS cells we need that a destroyer brings and the question is, what did Blinken give them in return for that? What 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 are we using? What are we giving away to get to kind of patch this Operation Prosperity Guardian back together? And to whose benefit? And you brought up you brought up uh, people paying the Houthis for safe transport. I guess there was a Danish publication that came out. Was it yesterday that said meetings, you know, took place between Houthi rebels and ship owners? And then, of course, we had, you know, Maersk and uh, who else came out? Maersk and somebody else. Yeah, basically came out and said, no, you know, that wasn't us. So I, I do think, I mean, it, is this like fantasy land that's publication made up? Or um, do you think that there are deals being made? Well, I talked to a lot of analysts. I actually uh, got a response back from CENTCOM basically saying, you know, uh, they're not going to comment or don't know about it. Um, it would it would be political suicide for a major carrier to do that. Uh, they, we completely expanded our ports. You know, the billions of dollars put into the port of Long Beach, the port of Newark, I mean, is a collaboration with these uh, major carriers. These major carriers have, uh, you know, they're, they're domiciled in the EU. EU has some of the strongest ESG and uh, political bribery crimes. So it, it would cause, and it would cause the Amazons of the world, the Walmart, the beneficial cargo owners to say, hey, what are you doing? So I, I think... I think it was false news. It could be at the same time, China's Costco shipping said that they are going to halt shipments to Israel. So is that a deal that they made with the Houthis or was that a business deal um, to the side of that? 
I don't know. And then you have to question, you know, the, the container shipping industry is by these mega carriers. The tanker industry is a lot more segmented. It's a lot more small, private, uh, family shipping companies and so forth. Are some of them making deals uh, with the Houthis? And what are the insurance implications? Um, I just got a, a rumor. It's not, it's not out there yet, but um, that, you know, the, the Saudi Arabia, that we can't, the private yachts can't get through the Red Sea to get to the F1 race in, in Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi government is going to basically create their own insurance to uh, insure these yachts so all the billionaires can get to Saudi Arabia for a, a car race. These are the crazy second order and third order things. Now, on the on the outset, that seems like a ridiculous story. Okay, so Saudi Arabia wants to underwrite a few mega yachts. Uh, but I mean, a, a sovereign entity creating its own insurance for billionaires. If you really think about that, it's, it's kind of crazy. It is crazy. And then back to Ross, what, so what are your, what are your premier hotspots that we should be looking at right now? Um, I don't know, you can, put them in order or not in order, but, you know, really where should we be, you know, looking, looking at, especially as far as, you know, I know there's a lot of investors on this uh, spaces as well. And so we're always looking to, you know, where's, where's the next disaster going to happen? <laughs> so um, the two main ones that I'd be looking at right now are, um, between you know the shipping corridors uh between the mainland of japan um and uh taiwan uh as well as the uh, uh exit route out of uh, northern china um and, and all the vessels that, that kind of run up the japanese intercoastal waterway cut through into the north pacific um, i would definitely be watching that right now uh also the uh, south china sea um there there's been a uh, familiar to most of us, uh, you know, low level, um, you know, malicious activity, gray zone type of activity by uh, Chinese fishing vessels, the maritime militia, uh, Chinese Coast Guard uh, in that world. But there's been a, a very interesting uh, and, and concerning uh, buildup of uh, different types of assets in that region. Uh, you're starting to see cargo vessels uh, that are flagged as commercial vessels, uh, but in China, uh, running in, in these fishing these fishing vessel wolf packs, um, you know, there's probably 30 ships sitting right now near near uh, uh, the Reef, which again is Filipino sovereign territory, um, but th that's been under dispute for for 20 something years. And so, when you're starting to see uh, mixed elements, um, sustainment and support vessels, you know, moving uh, along with these larger allegedly, you know, peace peaceful. Uh, fishing fleets um, the, the, that very much reeks of prepositioning uh, and, and pre-blockading type of activity, if you will, uh, to, to be able to be maximally disruptive. Um, but from a, a deeper standpoint, um, the, the biggest concern that I would have right now, if I'm a ship owner or if I'm somebody who's putting a lot of cargo on ships, is where are these ships bunkering? And there's been uh not widely reported but but you know familiar to people who follow maritime news closely uh a pattern of uh, uh disruption to the fuel supply chain 
uh, so specifically marine bunkers of, uh, you know, kind of various grades, but um, Singapore, Fujaya, uh, even Tampa and Florida uh, have all seen several incidences uh, in the last uh, eight to 12 months of uh, material entering the fuel supply chain at very small quantities, but is enough to be very disruptive to these vessels that, that you know, have been retrofit with scrubbers or that are relying on very, very kind of Gucci splash blended uh, fuels to, to hit the IMO's uh, uh, sulfur targets, uh, the IMO 2020 rule. And these ships are uh, having an awful lot of maintenance issues. They're, they're having a lot of uh, mechanical challenges. Uh, in a lot of cases, vessels have just gone completely dark. Uh, there, there was one fleet that I think it was six vessels over about a three week period, uh, all had major uh, critical challenges related to the fuel uh, and damage to the engines. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been molecularly traced back directly to China. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, contaminant product that can, or a waste product that comes out of the uh, refrigerant manufacturing supply chain. And, you know, 50 gallons of this stuff can contaminate 800,000 gallons of marine fuel to such a quantity that you can have a disruptive impact on ship operations. And when you're talking about more or less a supply chain and parts uh, challenge on the best of days and the best of times for a lot of these ship owners, uh, but now you're introducing, you know, widespread disruption and damage to engine systems and control systems on the ships. Um, I would be looking very closely at if you have, if, if you're invested into, if you're uh, operating or if you're dependent on uh, container ships and, and bulk ships that are uh, primarily bunkering at these lower cost hubs. Rotterdam actually had a, uh, an issue now that I think of it. Um, I'd be looking very, very closely at where these ships are bunkering and, and keeping sort of a nervous eye on every transit that they're not taking on uh, cheap, you know, contaminated fuels that have been, uh, you know, the contaminants aren't happening at the refinery, they're, they're happening at, at the midstream and the over-the-shore and, and ship-to-ship operations side where somewhere in that final mile of that molecule before it's getting on the ships and entering the fuel supply chain for these vessels, um, the, the, the fuels are being damaged. And my sort of fear is that aviation fuel will be next. Um, we've seen it with road diesel. We've seen it with, with marine fuel. Um, jet fuel, you know, makes a lot of sense. And when you talk about refinery capacity, specifically in Asia, uh, along the Pacific Rim, China controls about 90% of the refined fuel capacity. And so what they don't control, they will be able to contaminate if this pattern holds. And you'll start to see massive sort of inexplicable disruptions to uh, vessel availability, to uh, berthing times where they have to undergo repairs, wait for parts to get flown in, whatever it may be. So the, the choke point here is really less about geographic, although that's the one most people are familiar with, and more about a very specific supply chain choke point that uh, could could really emerge uh, as a, as a challenge to global trade in in 2024 and in 2025. Well, that's concerning, being that Argus just came out earlier this month and basically said that the U.S.'s West Coast has been importing more jet fuel from China in recent years. Um, so I can see where that would be a bit concerning if that can be if. The poor, or you know, if what you were talking about before could be traced back to China, that seems like something we probably ought to 
look into. Um, and then, uh, John, did you want to, uh, you know, tell us where, where you're closely looking at right now? Yeah, I, th I think the investment thing is really interesting. You know, I, I didn't, I refused to touch shipping for the first 15 years of my career because there was such an oversupply and overcapacity. And the, the interesting thing with shipping is it, it's never, it's, it's never just the, the boring, you know, five or 10% returns. It's not the S P 500. It's not going to keep going up. You're either going to make a ton of money or you're going to lose a ton of money. I mean, and that's, you know, they're, they're more billionaires per as a percentage of company owners in shipping than any other industry. Cause it's, if you win, you win big, but it's really hard to win because of those competitive aspects. But now we are seeing, um, just, I mean, you could invest in some of these companies just based off of common sense because there are no analysts. There are no politicians looking at this. It's not making the headlines. And when it does, the, you know, people like the New York times and are, are doing the completely wrong story. And there have been so many dips in shipping that panic, uh, sets in really quickly. Like you had that Danish, um, headline about Maersk or some of the major carriers potentially, um, potentially, um, uh, bribing the Houthis. Oh, I was going to say accepting bribes. <laughs> yeah, bribes. And it, there was a panic. A Zim shares, the Israeli carrier, dropped 18% in the in the pre-market. So, you know, went in with a, with a few calls, sold them an hour later. And as that panic subsides, like, you think that's a solution? You think the big companies are going to bribe the Houthis and everything's going to go back to normal? I mean, that's... That's absolutely ridiculous. So every time you get a glint of of happy news about the Red Sea, these things crash, and then they they spend a couple of days going sideways, and then they they raise up. And the other the interesting thing about shipping is because there there's there are no analysts. Uh, Jeffries has an excellent analyst, Omar's, but it's the only bank. Uh, there are a few others like Citibank that have a part time analyst who does other industries as well. But uh, but there and there are some great uh, private um, uh, analysts. Jay Mintzmeyer over at Seeking Alpha, Value Investor's Edge, excellent. You've had Calvin Froage on at Marhelm before. He does a great job. But uh, because there aren't these banks that really can put sanity into the market, you get these extreme moves, and some of them are just rationally absolute. I, I've never seen opportunities. I've been an investor for, for 15 years. I've never seen just uh, opportunities just based on common sense uh before and at very specific points so you, you have and then you have higher alpha really high alpha uh names like zim but you also have uh companies that are absolutely printing cash like daneos uh ticker symbol dac uh is another one that le that leases these uh container ships and then you have these tankers we've We've never had a smaller order book. This is historically small order book. So every time when these companies make a ton of money, they they go out and buy ships and then the market crashes. Well, because of these new environmental rules and because there's so much uh, anger, you know, ESG, that, that tankers have been uninvestable and these new regulations could threaten to wipe out the tanker industry. You have companies like uh, uh, Scorpio Tankers, ticker stable, STNG with product tanker, where there, there's no one, no one in the entire industry is building new tankers. We have a, 
decades low order book and freight rates keep going up. And unless you think these geopolitical concerns are going to solve themselves overnight, it, it's almost a, a no brainer. Um, and then you have excellent run companies like uh, Frontline, FRO, and International Seaways, INSW, uh, that are crude tankers. Well, that's that's a little more a question of will, will OPEC release oil or will they not release oil? Will there be demand? But again, a historically low uh, order book. And then you have the LNG stocks, which are just going nor- higher and higher and higher. That might be risky. It could collapse overnight. But you know, some of these, some of the fundamentals and some of these companies, the amount of dividends and purchases are absolutely phenomenal. And um, again, I've been in sh- investing uh, for, for 20 years. I've been in shipping for almost 30 years and I've never seen just absolute opportunities. And yeah, these are things that would make Warren Buffett salivate, but Berkshire Hathaway's too big um, to, I mean, take... Take one of my 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 favorite uh, companies, OSG. It's a Jones Act carrier. It's a crude oil tanker company. Um, its entire market cap, I think it's four hundred to five hundred million dollars. The cost to replace one of their ships, a Jones Act ship in the United States, would be five hundred to six hundred million dollars. So the entire value of the company is less than the cost to replace one ship. So even if it went bankrupt tomorrow and they sold all these ships, you would make a ton of money. But by the way, the U S Navy has to move all of their jet fuel and, and military jet fuel is going up as all these geopolitical and the the ship fuel is, you know, the needs are, well, they have to move this stuff on U S flag. It's a lot to move it on U S flag tankers. So, I mean, this is like a no brainer investment. I've been in two years. I just, keeps climbing uh, northwards. And Matson, M-A-T-X, is a container ship line that's all U.S. flag. Well, they're guaranteed U.S. Navy protection in these areas. Um, I don't know as much about the fundamentals and the technicals on that. I, you know, go go talk to people like J- Jay Mintzmeyer and Calvin Froich. But some incredible opportunities and huge dips as these panics set in where, where you can get a, a decent entry level. Excellent. Thank you. And then I know we've gone over the hour here and I do appreciate your time, but um, just uh, the same question. The This is the last round. Kind of um, your final thoughts and you can talk about something that you wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten a t- chance to talk about uh, or, uh, you know, just your closing thoughts on the situation. And we'll start with Ross. Yeah, I mean, we covered, um, you know, sort of a broad range of topics. Um, the uh, this is normally where I ramble, Tracy, uh, on, on your spaces. So I'm not I'm not going to do that today. Um, just uh, do want to thank everyone. Um, you know, I, I, I don't mean to be uh, a doom and gloom type. You know, I'm a pretty optimistic person. And, and you know, as John well knows, um, you know, I've got a lot of personal skin in the game on these issues. So when I I talk about disruption, to th- you know, and, and opportunities in South America or Central America or in, in, in the Pacific Rim. Um, these are not these are not data points that are coming from, you know, I, I read it on G Captain, although I read G Captain every day and everybody here should. It's it's the best source of uh, news if you know how to read between the lines on, on what's going on in global trade. Um, but it's also so ground level skin in the game and you know, operating companies and customers in these regions at 
you know, at the point of requirement. So um, if anybody does have questions, um, you know, absolutely, by all means, uh, reach out directly or Tracy and John know how to get a hold of me. Um, you know, I'm happy to help. My, my, my goal in, in participating in these and, and sharing with everybody is um, to build awareness to help individuals, you know, kind of of their own free will and to the extent possible, make the best decisions possible. Uh, because by and large, the, 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 the real story, the real news um, is not happening at, at any sort of mainstream level, mainstream outlets, whether it's in uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the maritime sector, the, the trade magazines, the, the news on TV. Um, a lot of that's very carefully stage managed by the people that are responsible for the challenges that we're in. And um, so, so do be sure to, uh, you know, engage, share, because uh, really everybody here is the best source of information for everybody else, not, uh, not a lot of the subscription services or, or open source information. So, um, you know, trust one another, build each other up, and, and that's, that's really truly how we end up getting through this time. Absolutely, and I can confirm, Ross, you are the best. Um, uh, and you. very helpful. <laughs> um, and then, uh, John, your final thoughts, you can talk about something that we, you didn't get a chance to discuss that you wanted to discuss, or, you know, just your, you know, leave us with some parting words. Right. Uh, so uh, there, there are a hundred topics I'd like to discuss and passionate about, um, especially the, the securing of this world trade and the, the safety of the seafarers in the in the area. But what I really want to talk about, but the most popular post, it's, it's got like six, seven hundred thousand views on my uh, Twitter thing is a post where I just said that Navy experts do not understand the shipping experts and shipping experts do not understand the, the military. And my success, uh, Ross's success, people like Sal Mercagliano's success in kind of parsing out uh, some of these issues is you know, we've we've spent the last couple of years really diving deep into uh, the Navy and shipping and energy markets and finance. Um, so it was very easy a couple of years ago or up to COVID where, you know, someone on TV or a market analyst could just be a generalist and you could just follow even one sector, the the tech and and be an expert in just one thing and make a lot of money. Now the the money and the insights and the ideas are being made by people like Ross and Sal. Uh, you know, the stock analysts like Jim Bianco spent three Jim spent three hours on my spaces just asking questions. That guy's on CNBC and Bloomberg every single day because he wanted to understand. The, these concepts that fight into inflation, and I, I think I think you're the, you're the best example of this, Tracy. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm not just thankful that you brought me on here, but that, that you're diving into these ESG, you're diving into the politics, you're diving into to obscure shipping markets, you're diving into military logistics, uh, you, you know, and I you're you're not a generalist. You're good diving deep, and you can't you can't. You can't look at everything, right? You can't, you, no one has time and space to look at everything. But your ability to find what's important and dive deep into that and find those experts in those not one or two important topics, not just, just the Federal Reserve and what the tech crowd is doing, but 10 or 12 or 15 topics. Um, I, I think that's, that's, that w that's what makes your feed brilliant and, and some of these other people who are really nailing these predictions. And if you can get that, 
dive deep into a dozen uh, topics like you do. I, I think the insights that you bring out, um, nobody else has. I, I think you can really uh, outperform uh, the, the market and, and you know, the expert analysis. So thank you. Thank you for having us on and really diving into not just energy, but shipping and politics and finance. Uh, I think it's a huge, huge win for your, your followers. Well, thank you very much. And you are also amazing. I learn so much from you every day, so much from Ross every day, so much from Sal, who I see is in the audience. Um, do follow these people on Twitter, especially if you're interested in in the in the shipping industry, because you won't find uh, better information out there. I can tell you that. And with that, I just want to thank you again so much, you guys. And uh, I definitely look forward to having you back on again. And with that, while well, we'll see everybody next Wednesday on Spaces. Thanks, thank everyone. you so much. Thanks, everyone.